Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 155. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right, Nick. Hey, so uh, episode 155 is part two of our two-parter with Tom Hatch, right? He uh, was the original founder of the SALT project, uh, the open source project for uh, configuration management, um, and also the founder of SaltStack, the uh, company that grew up around uh, that and uh, help promote the ecosystem. Uh, so if you haven't listened to part one, uh, you really should go back and listen to that. That's episode 154. Tom talked a little bit about his genesis and public speaking, talked about interviewing on both sides of the interview, the genesis of SALT, uh, personal challenges along the way as the project grew. Just, just a really good listen. Yeah, definitely go back if you haven't. I should also point out this is another, uh, I'll say this again, this is another recording that I missed, unfortunately. I was really bummed that I missed it, but it is really fun to listen back to it. I don't want to give too much away, but I will say I'd love to hear about Tom's observations about working in the open source space. Um, He dives a little bit more into that this time around, and he even has some really interesting advice for entrepreneurs and uh, stories and like observations about SaltStack getting acquired by VMware. Yeah, I'll just add a couple nuggets of reference as well. I would say pay attention to the segment on two versus three-dimensional thinking. You may be wondering what we're really after when it starts, but by the end of that segment, I think you'll see that there's an interesting career application. And a little Easter egg, Tom Hatch has had acting experience in his life, and that actually comes into play in a very interesting way in this discussion. But without giving anything else away, let's get to part two of our interview with Tom Hatch. So back to the work on the open source, the the hard work. You were the only contributor, right? There wasn't a, you didn't have a a co-contributor or anybody else at the beginning when you started making this open source project, right? Right. Yeah. So salt was, uh, entirely me. And, um, I was, uh, I still had the most commits to the project. I want to say until I need to double check the date. Pedro is the one who uh, finally passed me up, but I had the most commits to salt until around 2019, even though, I almost completely stopped working on it after about late 2015. Okay. So, yeah, so I, I built it on my own. The vast majority of the core features in Salt, uh, I I built from scratch, architected, built everything. 
with that, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that in a way that diminishes the contributions that we receive. The contributions have been astonishing, um, but uh, no, for a very long time it was very much just me running the show. I didn't have a didn't have a partner or anything. Now again, I got I got to quantify. I've worked with some amazing people um, who were hired at SaltStack, who have been fantastic engineers, who worked who worked full time on Salt and did amazing things. Uh, so I do I do not want it to diminish by any means their contributions and the hard work that they've done. Phenomenal people. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, yeah, yeah, the solo act. Wow, that's a tough one, especially for something that just on the surface sounds like a huge, huge task. What about entering that open source community in, in terms of the people you met, the networking connections it gave you, had you been part of other technology communities before that tell tell us a little bit about that uh no it was all new to me um i had never given con significant contributions to any other projects i hadn't worked on other open source projects it was completely new it was terrifying <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh boy i had a lot of lessons to learn <laughs> and so it was especially terrifying because like through 2011, I didn't get a whole lot of contributions. People were starting to use Salt, which was really cool. But uh, I did a podcast in November of 2011, and before that podcast, I'd received contributions from 11 people. I started the project in February 2011, and before that podcast in November, I had received yeah, I'd received contributions from uh, I want to say 11 people. And then by the end of the year, uh, we, uh, the project had received contributions from, I think, uh, over 110 people. And so just a little bit of marketing, a little bit of exposure, and it just spiked. And all of a sudden, I'm reviewing code <laughs> and trying to figure out how do I even communicate with all these people. Yeah, it was, it was, it was daunting. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Well, I imagine that has to be kind of hard because you put so much work into this thing and it's essentially yours in the beginning and you're allowing other people to contribute to it. And it, it's not a, I don't see it as a narcissism thing, but it's kind of like, I got to make sure that everybody respects what this is and goes in the direction I want and keep all that in mind as I do these code reviews. But to your point, you know, kind of be respectful of the people who are contributing and thankful that they are, but protecting the, I guess the goals for the project. So right off the bat, I, I definitely had a bit of a self-confidence issue because people came in and I, and I saw myself as just some guy cranking out code and I didn't think I knew that much. And uh, so I, I accepted a little more advice than I probably should have <laughs> from from community contributors. And so, I mean, that's one vein. Uh, I think, I think I rolled over at times where I probably shouldn't have, um, and learned that lesson in the early years to stick to my guns and at the same time, be diplomatic. You know, you should, you should always be diplomatic and being able to say, look, 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 I get where you're going, but that's going to break these other things, right? That introduces these liabilities. But, but early on, I didn't, I didn't see those. The other thing is that you can very quickly become a slave to the community. And a lot of 
a lot of open source uh, leads have run into this problem uh, and have talked about it, where you end up in this situation where there are so many voices that want you to do certain things that uh, you you just get scared to say no. You get and and even if you are saying no, you spend a lot of your time just going over all these requests. I mean, I'd wake up in the morning. There were days where we would have over a hundred pull requests come in, and I'm just churning through these things like, I want more of my life <laughs> to not just be reviewing code, and I'd end up going, okay, I've merged a ton of PRs. A lot of them are good, but they're in the plugin layers. Like they're not driving the project forward. And I'm going, I need to get back into driving things forward. And a lot of this shaped my view of what I think open source software should be. Because I, I go back and I look at a lot of the origins of open source software, where the software that was being developed followed the Unix philosophy. And look at Apache, the fact that it was this amalgamation of a lot of patches to software. It's software that's written in a distributed style. Over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen the introduction of a huge amount of venture capital into open source and a huge amount of corporate influence into open source. And so we've started to develop open source through a corporate lens. And we've had to because of the size and scope of the projects that we're dealing with. We're not writing, uh, we're not writing a, a Unix tool chain anymore where we're going, well, I gotta have, uh, I gotta have a really good working version of grep and cat to make this thing work. No, I mean, we're, we're, we're writing stuff like MongoDB. You know, we're writing uh, Kubernetes, these huge platforms. And my, my view of this has been, has become very strongly that we have to rethink how we write highly distributed software. And that's a lot of what I'm working on nowadays and a lot of what I'm working on inside of VMware. Uh, so a project I'm working on inside of VMware is called Item. And a lot of the goals of Item, Item is based on something else I wrote inside of SolStack called POP or plugin-oriented programming. And a lot of the ideas I'm driving here are along the lines of saying that we need to free up the engineers to innovate and develop and keep building without being bogged down in that situation of community governance or into the in the community um, politics that that so often happen when the projects get bigger because you've got so many people invested in that project and so what I've been working on with this thing called pop is this idea about how code can be merged in ways that go outside of the traditional dependency library model, where normally when you write software, you write a piece of software and it's got a bunch of downstream dependencies, right? Mm -hmm. The plugin-oriented programming model is one where, sure, you'll still have downstream dependencies because life, but that somebody else can attach to and extend your software without ever having to talk to you. That they can take the plugin interfaces that you create, write their own code, which can merge directly into your software so long as it's installed alongside it, and they can get the full benefit of their work. That also means that when they write software, they have to own it completely. There's no escape. When somebody contributes software to a big project, it's not, it's not theirs anymore. That big project owns it. That's a good point. 
And, and so a lot of contributors, they'll come and go. And accepting those contributions also accepts a certain type of liability. And so again, what I'm trying to do from a pop perspective, this plugin-oriented programming thing that I'm working on is to say, is there a way for someone to contribute to my software and they maintain the liability of their code that I'll only mainstream it into my software after it's already established itself on its own right and merit. And this is how the Unix philosophy worked in the earlier days of Linux development anyway. Somebody would write peripheral software and it's just a shell program, right? And you would only gain traction with that software once it had proven itself. Instead of somebody coming in and saying, I've got a concept, I'm going to staple it on to an existing project and wham, it's a big deal. Now you gotta, you gotta, you gotta earn it yourself. It's gotta validate itself in a more open market kind of way, which is what, which is what the bazaar is all about, right? But instead we're writing open source software inside of a cathedral now. And I, and I think that that's gotta go away. Otherwise we do. We make, we make the innovators and the people who are making the big software in many ways, uh, slaves to their own community. And I'm also sick of the fact that I've seen a lot of my friends who run big open source projects kind of go nuts just dealing with the pressures that they get from from contributors because there's all these contributors who come in and say rightfully i have rights to make this software work for me but i would argue back they don't have rights to impose their needs on another person to fulfill them and so it gets i think it gets muddy and i think that the whole thing needs to evolve I don't think I've answered any of these questions remotely the way that you would expect me to. No, but it, it's actually fascinating. And I appreciate that background because I don't have a background in open source and I've not really been much of a contributor except for a couple of times to a project called Mangle. And it was mostly documentation, right? Not not code. But uh, that was fun. I really enjoyed it. I guess what I'm wondering, Tom, is do you have any thoughts on contributions to open source and the ability for someone to use that to get into software development as an eventual career or how how does that boost my career if I'm contributing to open source in the tech world so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and change this answer from how I used to answer it you know I go back okay. 10 years or so I remember one time I was interviewing for a job and I'd done I, I mean, I've I, I've done very, very few open source contributions and they asked about how to do a specific thing. And I said, oh, you do it like this and you use this module. And uh, oh, and I wrote that module. Right. And it was a I got it's the luckiest interview of my life. Right. <laughs> like, wow, they're actually using some code I've written. I've written like three things that are tiny. And then and I'm like, oh, yeah, this module is a good way to do it. You know that I put together this is how it works. And uh, the guy, one of the guys interviewing me looks over to his boss and says, dude, we, we use this guy's code already. That was a 100% in the door, right? I got an offer to work at that place before it was an offer in my email before I was, I was home, right? In my car, wow. I had an offer to get, I, I had an offer for a job with a 30% raise over where I, where I was working at the time. You can definitely make big improvements in your career by contributing to open source. But a lot of people are contributing to open source. What you're getting by contributing to open source from a career development perspective today has far more to do with your exposure to 
getting a getting a good code review your exposure to learning how the process works your exposure to uh, just getting your hands dirty in code that's how you learn right ten years ago you contribute to some open source projects you get committed and the person interviewing you goes oh my gosh this person this person contributed code to Git. they're amazing right nowadays it's it's less of a wow factor than it used to be and so i wouldn't i wouldn't count on the wow factor as much but if but if i get a resume and they've contributed to a lot of projects and i can go look at their contributions and say this person knows what they're doing that's that's a big deal the other thing is that I can look at their contributions and I can look at their conversations online and I can say, is this person going to be a pain in my side for, for the next five years? Or is this person a diplomat who is understanding and reasonable? And so remember, when you contribute to open source, you were there to learn. You were there to grow. You were not there to be some, be smarter than somebody else. You're not more important than anybody else in that community. If you think you are, I don't want to deal with you. Nobody wants to deal with you. If you're going to walk into somebody else's community and boss them around, man, you suck. Yeah. And remember that, yeah, what you put online, that's there forever. The digital trail is there, and people can find it, just as you said. Hopefully hiring managers are are looking for those things. Don't think someone's not going to check out your work on the Internet if you put it on your resume. Oh, yeah. It's so easy to do these days. But on the flip side, as you mentioned, it's proof of work, proof of, I guess you would call it in a way, your brand. That's how someone else can see what your personal brand is and what you're like. I love the way that you said that. That reminds me. Um, uh, so I've spent some time, a little bit of time in my career doing some acting. And there's this there's this whole video online of Michael Caine giving an acting class. It's absolutely fantastic. It's back in the 90s. And one of the things that he says in this, this acting class is establish a personal brand. Because how, how movies work and how TV shows work when they hire an actor is they say, I need, I need a certain personality to fill a role. And if you've got a really good brand, then they'll say, that's the personality I need to fill this role. And, and they'll bring you in because they say, oh, yeah, I know that that person's going to deliver what I need for this production. When you write open source software and when you put, put yourself out there, you are establishing a personal brand that communicates to the rest of the world that you are a certain type of expert. You have a certain level of expertise and you're going to approach problems in a specific way. And that brand that you create is something that is going to be able to carry you through your own career in, in a big way. And so uh, Michael Caine was right, not just for actors. Because, frankly, when we're hiring tech people today, we don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I just need myself another run-of-the-mill engineer. No, we wake up and say, we have a specific set of problems which are going to continue to emerge inside of this project. I need people who understand these sets of problems and can function inside those roles. And you want to be hired by companies that are looking for a brand. You don't want to be hired by companies who just want a pile of engineers. You want somebody who recognizes the brand that you are able to create. 
And at the same time, don't let your ego get in the way. It's easy to do once you got to, once you got a brand. Of course, yeah. There's no reason to be a jerk to other people in the tech in any community, really. You know, it doesn't matter what you know. There's there's always someone who is going to know more. There's always someone who's going to know less, and there's always going to be someone who you can help and someone who can help you. So keep that in mind, two sides to the coin. Always, always, always. Yep, and and every scenario that you run into, that's a beautiful opportunity. I love working for people who know stuff I don't know. And I love working with people who want to learn. And I love working uh, working with, uh, well, people who I can make good friends. One of the things I try to explain, every now and then somebody will be like, man, Tom, you're so much smarter than me. And I'll kind of calm, be like, all right, calm down, buddy. Our intelligences are just, they're just spheres of things that we know. And I think I'm doing okay. I got a lot to learn. And we've got a little bit of overlap in the Venn diagram. We both know some similar things. But you know lots of things I don't know. And that knowledge that you have is still valuable, right? I don't encompass everything that you know. And I'm deeply interested in your knowledge and experience, which is outside of my scope. Because that will richen and strengthen the efforts that I'm trying that I'm trying to fulfill and the goals I'm trying to reach. And and I need to learn how to make them your goals too, that we share those goals. And I want to share your goals. And that's that's what intelligence is, is coming together in a truly collaborative way and understanding that no, 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 no. I might know a lot of stuff, but dude, you know stuff I don't know, and I need that too. We're you know, we're in it together. We're we're here we're here to stand together and, and lift. I like that. I like the way you put it because I think a lot of people don't think that they have something to offer, something to share, something they they know, even, you know, especially when they're first starting out. But there's a perspective that you as a listener have that we don't. There's something that you are deeply knowledgeable about that we aren't, guaranteed. The comparisons to other people make it hard. You know, that, that brings the imposter syndrome, much like you were talking about earlier when you said you had some self-esteem issues. It's that comparison to others that that keeps us comparing ourselves to others. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. How about this one, Tom? You did a you did a session at VMworld this year called the Salt Stack Story, and it's a great session. I'm going to put the link in the show notes, and you talked about how you a little bit about how you built Salt, about how you started SaltStack as a company and what it was like to monetize an open source project around a company. I guess my question is, can you explain the differences between two- and three-dimensional thinking that you gave in that talk and how that has made you better? Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks thanks for asking. That's that's kind of one of my one of my things right now. I uh, um, And I should probably also shoot you over a talk I just gave at SaltConf. Uh, on a similar similar subject, so I got to I got to yeah, explore that a lot more open source in the enterprise because that whole concept of two dimensional and three dimensional thinking is uh, I think it's really critical in the way that we look at things nowadays because the ecosystems that we're dealing with are they're just too big. I mean, you go back thirty years and it's almost any industry. You make a product, you sell the product, right? You say, I'm going to make me some good burgers, and I'm going to sell me some burgers. <laughs> it's really straightforward. And I support burgers. Love them. Oh, I, I love burgers. But so we have to account for a very broad ecosystem. 
And I'm wondering if I use this comparison, I'm trying to remember if I use this comparison in that presentation with, uh, uh, with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Did I talk about this? Maybe. It rings a bell. Okay. Somebody who thinks two-dimensionally is like Khan in this old Star Trek movie. And Kirk is constantly saying, always oh, thinking two-dimensionally. I've got him. And Kirk's right. Somebody who's thinking two-dimensionally has the blinders on. They're, they're hyper-focused on what's directly in front of them. And there are days where we should put the blinders on. Don't get me wrong. But to think three-dimensionally means that you take the entire ecosystem around you into consideration. That you're willing to step back and say, what are all of the things that are going on? And how can I build solutions that function inside of a broader ecosystem? And... The whole sphere of open source and proprietary software development right now has become so big and so vast, largely because of open source, that it mandates that we think three-dimensionally. We need to understand that open source software development and open source projects are critical to driving proprietary software adoption in the modern world. If you are creating proprietary software and you are not seeking out an understanding how open source software is creating gravity towards your products, then you are not thinking three-dimensionally. You're thinking two-dimensionally because you're, you're stepping back and you're saying that that old school, I'm just going to make a better product than the next guy and it's going to work. What you really need to do is say, who are all of the people that are peripheral to the product goals that I have? How, what is the overall objective that I'm driving for? My long-term strategic objective. And what components of that objective need to draw people towards, um, towards my movement and my strategy that need to be done in an open source way and need to be done in a proprietary way? You need to understand the nature of open source development and the nature of proprietary and commercial development. You need to understand that open, I mean, to oversimplify, that in open source, we're really good at making platforms. In proprietary software, we're, we're really good at driving end user solutions. Open source isn't very good at this, uh, which is why we still haven't had the year of the open source desktop, which makes me sad. I love KDE. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> But you mean 2021 isn't the year of the open source desktop. Hmm. Unless we'll you call it, um, unless you call it Android. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But so what, what you end up with is really needing to step back and understand that that overall product strategy has to take into account multiple veins and aspects of, of the users. Cause you're not just solving a pinpoint user problem anymore. You're solving ecosystem problems. And the real human problems that we need to solve next are about people communicating with each other. It's not about saying, here's a specific job or role that needs to be bolstered with software. Dude, we've done that. We've made spreadsheets. Okay, the accountants are happy. And we need to be able to say, how do we build software that builds communities and builds ecosystems? And that's where three-dimensional thinking comes in. Who do I need to address with open source software? 
What communities do I need to interact with? What software do I need to build on top of? What are the benefits and liabilities and strengths and weaknesses that I get from utilizing this open source software? How is that going to affect the long-term development of my proprietary software? Who are my target customers that I'm driving this software development for towards? But at the same time, how do I compensate for the liabilities that I inherit through the utilization of a, of a broader open source ecosystem? Who are the open source users that I need to address with open source software and philosophy that I can drive, which creates gravity and visibility back to what I'm making? The companies that are doing this well are multi, are the trillion dollar companies. Because that's the huge shift that Microsoft made, whether they talk about it or not. It was that they embraced open source, drove developer adoption, uh, were able to understand that they're working in a larger ecosystem, and therefore they were able to dramatically accelerate their own solution architecture development by adopting open source software. They were able to push into new markets by creating trust in areas where it didn't exist before. They were able to seed open source users through proper freemium models that elevate into proprietary purchases. And those understandings is what, again, drove Microsoft to win. And Apple has done the same thing, even though they'll, they'll, they don't act like they do. They're using tons of open source software inside of Mac OS, and they have for a long time. And they did it with an understanding of the liabilities which they inherit. Even though it was hard for them to learn, they still, in the end, uh, were, able, were, were able to adjust and bring in the aspects of an open, open source ecosystem. So that level of complexity and that three-dimensional thinking what is the ecosystem? That's what the future of successful software needs to be. Uh, we can't just wave a flag around and say, oh, we're going to make something that's SaaS and it's going to work. Now, it's deeper than that. It's broader than that. And so, yeah. So you got me talking about 2, 2D, 3D, and I just, I think I just, I think I just yammered for like 15 minutes. I, no, you didn't. It was good. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I think they're, when you said ecosystems, it made me think about, you know, the tech communities that we participate in outside the office, right? And then there's the community that we participate in inside our employer and how the participation in these tech communities that aren't part of your day job actually can, you know, you think of it as the freemium version, right? That can lead you into what you call the paid version or the proprietary software and get you into a new organization a lot of times. It gets me a next job because of what I was doing over here. Led, at least that's what I thought of from a career perspective while you're, while you're describing it. Good stuff. I like Yeah, very much so because uh, your contributions and your work with and your experience with an open source piece of software is so often what's, what drives you towards a better job is because somebody else says, oh, I need somebody who knows this stuff. And those contributions make a brand that establishes you, you personally inside of an ecosystem and that drives your career forward in a, in a highly productive way as opposed to just saying, I go to work and do what they tell me to do. That makes sense. Yeah, because that's two-dimensional thinking, just going to work and doing what you're told to do. And you had to master the three-dimensional thinking as part of being the CTO and founder of SaltStack. Hypothetical question, you probably get asked this a lot, but 
knowing what you know now, and if you wanted to give your former self advice about, hey, I'm going to start a company built on this open source project, what would it be? Would you do it again? Well, I mean, if I could go back in time, no, I wouldn't do it again. I'd invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Buy some high-dollar graphics cards and do some Bitcoin mining, right? <laughs> okay, no, no, seriously, uh, I, I got to be honest. If I could go back and give my former self advice, I wouldn't tell me anything. Um, I needed to go on the path I went on. I wouldn't have learned what I'd learned if I hadn't if I hadn't gone there. And and uh, I'm just I'm really grateful for how many times I've been punched in the kidneys because because that's that's given me more than any monetary success ever could have, which I, I think might sound a little weird to say to say it like that, but I guess at the same time, I'm kind of at peace with my struggles and my mistakes. Well, you know, it's it sounds like Doc Brown was right in Back to the Future when he said no one should know too much about their own future. Oh, yeah. And, and, this, and this actually goes back to what we were talking about a little while ago about being told no and the learning experiences you get from it. Sounds similar to what you're saying here, that, that path of growth and learning is something you really appreciated. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that that's one of the most important parts of being human, honestly, is, uh, is understanding that the struggles that you have, however terrible they are, um, can really be some of the most beautiful things that you, that you can experience in life. For sure. What advice might you have for other people who want to start their own company? It's a good thing you don't know what you're getting into. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> I, I run into a lot of people who are entrepreneurs now uh, or, or, or want to be entrepreneurs uh, who come and they say, oh, I've got this product idea. I want to do this or that. And uh, I routinely, I'm more than happy to sit down with them uh, in, in a lot of cases and give them some advice and say, do these things. You call me in a month and tell me how you've done it, how, how things have come along. Tell me what you've learned and we'll talk again. And they, they almost never call me. I've had a, you know, say, say I've talked to 15 people. Um, two of them have called me back and we've had a second meeting and, uh, and no third meetings kind of a thing. What, and, and none of these people got anywhere. You need tenacity. You need to accept the fact that a lot of people are going to tell you that what you're doing is nuts. You need to take a hard look at yourself and realize that what you're doing might actually be nuts and maybe you should quit. <laughs> and I guess if, if I, if I follow that vein, there's some stuff I'm working on right now that there's a lot of days where I think I'm nuts and people tell me I'm nuts. Um, to be working on it, they'll say, Tom, that there's no monetization path there. Or, you know, that's a huge thing you're trying to do. And I kind of step back and say, look, it's also so much of it is honestly about the journey. I mean, I know I sound like some, you know, after school special, but roll with the punches, walk through the situations, accept the fact that stuff might not go, isn't going to go the way you want it to go and learn and grow. Be willing to always look at things from a different angle and realize that uh, what life's trying to teach you is going to change and shift. Where you think you're going isn't, isn't where you're going to be. Stop thinking it's where you're going to be. Have goals, have a vision, have a plan, 
drive towards it, accept the fact that the waves of the sea are going to push you in different directions. And when you go in a different direction, accept it. Look around. Understand where you are. Don't beat yourself up. Don't try and force yourself back to your original path. Instead, step back and say, I know more about the lay of the land now. How does that change my thinking? What new opportunities are out there? And constantly shift and move. And while you build, don't close doors. A mistake we make in software engineering all the time is that we'll write software that makes it hard to, uh, you know, we kind of block ourselves in. And I'm constantly telling software engineers, no, no, you don't have to close that door. You don't have to make it so that this other possibility could never happen. Just just think for another half an hour how to keep that door open. And they always come back and say, okay, the door's open. And if you leave those doors open, you'll have more opportunities, but not only opportunities, you'll be able to see the big picture. And that's what you've got to do as an entrepreneur is see the big picture. Very few entrepreneurs make a product and get lucky and make it big, and they don't have to go through this iteration of having to understand that the landscape's uh, a terribly difficult thing to deal with. And those entrepreneurs that do make it big on the first time, you can tell because they've got a myopic product that does one thing, and every time I've seen one of those guys and they start another company, they blow themselves up. And it's, it's, it's been incredibly fascinating to watch as I've seen a lot of these entrepreneurs, some of them who have taken companies public and made tens of and hundreds of millions of dollars, blow it all up and burn it all up to try and make another myopic company. You can't do it twice because you were lucky. And if you want to be a good entrepreneur, don't bet on luck. I got to tell you, I, I have not been lucky. <laughs> I've had so many things go wrong, but it doesn't matter. Every time something goes wrong, there's some good in it. And, and you got to find it and figure it out because that's where the real opportunities are. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. Once you build a company like a salt stack, that eventually, obviously, it's been acquired by VMware. Uh, you know, you, you watch news stories and you hear stories about companies that get acquired and things that happen. Were you a little bit worried about I'm not going to be able to control the future of this thing that I built. I'm going to have to give up my baby for somebody to someone else who isn't going to care for it the same way I can. What are the feelings that go through your mind when you get acquired, I guess, if, if you're willing to share? So I sit down with my kids, right, my, my, my daughters, mm -hmm. and explain to them that I love them and that they mean the world to me and that my job as a dad is to do everything I can to raise them so that they can be self-sufficient human beings that can take care of themselves, that have self-confidence, and that they can uh, that they can have their own lives. And nothing will make me happier than if they can have their own lives. And one of the things that's so fantastic about Solstack getting acquired is that my baby's gone off to college, and I love it. There you go. And it's able to run itself to a large degree. And like when, when a parent sends a kid off to college, every now and then, you've got to sit the kid down and smack him around and say, come on, you moron. <laughs> Why'd you do that? But for the most part, SaltStack is operating very independently of me inside of VMware. Now, I'm I'm... I got to be careful in saying that I'm doing a ton of work around SaltStack, 
right? But I don't have to be anywhere near as hands-on to a lot of the day-to-day pieces of functionality inside of Salt Stack that I used to be. My goal is that it doesn't need me. Just like, again, just like the goal of a good parent. And that opens up opportunities for me inside of VMware to try and have more kids, which is why I'm there talking about why I'm talking about uh, this the work I'm doing with Item and the work I'm doing with plugin oriented programming because I think that we're on to some big stuff here. And my goal is that over the next few years, Salt is completely self sufficient and that it isn't coming home for money anywhere near as often. <laughs> And that, uh, and then we got some new kids who can grow up in, inside of VMware, and that those new kids have a that that they leverage and work with and enrich the salt ecosystem, just like a good sibling should. I like that analogy. That's cool. If people have questions, want to follow up with you, can they reach out to you on social media? Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, I I don't do very much on social media. Uh, but, uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm T hatch 45 all over the place. Um, I'm T hatch 45 on virtually every platform that I'm on and, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out and ask some questions, uh, connect and, uh, yeah, love, love to get to know more people. Awesome. Well, Tom Hatch, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge and experience with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure. theme in here of collaboration that we see that I really like. He he had to learn it kind of the hard way when he got into open source and how to collaborate properly in that community, building something, guiding the direction, but still be collaborative with people who wanted to add to it and and contribute code. That didn't sound like it was a lot of fun, but it produced a lot of learning for Tom. And then, of course, he had to be collaborative with others when he owned his company. Even though at times he just wanted to be an engineer, he had to go and and do other things, not just be heads down with the code. Tom mentioned that he loves working with people that know things that he doesn't, and that we're all here to stand together and lift because intelligence is about spheres of things we know. Again, that's really about collaboration at the heart of it, you know? Yeah, I really thought especially that first point resonated with me. Um, And it's something that we've seen before, right? People talking about um, getting into management as a career path, you know, and having management be like just a completely different skill set. Just because you're uh, good at doing the job doesn't mean that you're going to be good at managing people in the job. And if you are an entrepreneur, you know, unless you are intentionally going to be a single person show, like that's going to be really hard. You know, even working with just one other person brings overhead of, of management into it. So just just a really fascinating observation. I actually think that even though it wasn't stated outrightly, he's a builder. Just like Chris Wall said he's a builder. You know, you can kind of tell by the comments near the end of the show. He even says, don't close doors when you build things. I liked that. 
that would be something that he would encourage one of his engineers writing code to do. But even on a another level, building new endeavors, he's he's built SaltStack. It's been acquired. It's not that he doesn't still do work on that, but with item and the plugin oriented programming, he's he's looking at what's next, looking to build that next thing, have the next kid get ready for college. Yeah, I I just found that to be a fascinating observation and the willingness for that to happen, you know, for the the project to, you know, leave home and go to college like that isn't something that everybody has the strength of character to be able to do. And sometimes it's not the right thing to do, right? I don't know. It's probably very difficult to be, you know, the founder of a single person startup and also have all the skills to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that it grows into, right? Like that's a that's a large crossover skill and it would take, you know, a lot of time to, to develop along the way. I really enjoyed hearing about Tom being at peace with the struggles that he's had and the mistakes that he's made. Like that was also very eye-opening. And actually now that I say that, it was interesting because he had advice for entrepreneurs, but at the same time, he wouldn't go back in time to give himself that advice, you know, because he had to go through those struggles in, in order to really, you know, maybe learn those things. And and it was, you know, important to his growth and where he got. So just a, a really interesting conversation there and, and series of observations. Um, You know, another mention of personal brand. Um, you know, that grew out of the, uh, the acting that you mentioned, uh, in the intro, right? The, the Michael Caine acting class online, you know, that, that issue of personal brand and, and what you're projecting and putting out there for the world to consume about you. Like that's another interesting theme that has emerged, you know, from not just Tom, but from, you know, several of the other people that we've talked about. We'll probably have a, a personal brand uh, tag in our tag cloud that, that we'll reference. Don't forget that digital trail, everybody. What you do <laughs> online is so easy to find. In addition to how you act with your coworkers and community members and such, family members. But if you're a jerk online, there's a high probability you're going to be a jerk at work too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that um, the digital trail is <laughs> uh, something that, you know, gives evidence to, you know, what is truly in one's character, right? Like if you're a jerk online, it's like you said, you're probably a jerk to people in real life and and people are telling stories about it, right? Making observations and the the evidence will mount up against you. It's, you know, yet another reason why we need to take like a pretty strong, like, you know, personal inventory and figure out what it is that we need to do for personal growth. So it sounds like you're saying we need to think three dimensionally about our personal brand. Is that what I'm getting from you, John? <laughs> I really like that discussion about like increasing the context that we're thinking about things in too. Yeah, I, I, I do think that. <laughs> uh, well, Nick, uh, anything else before we get out of here? No, sir. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. 
or collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at VJourneyman for Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios.